On this Saturday morning time, once again, for another wine chat with our friend from Haskell's, Jack Farrell. Good morning, Jack. Hi, Denny. How are you this morning? I'm doing quite well, thank you. I hope you are, too. It's a beautiful day. Uh, we're looking forward to a beautiful day. It's that time of year, and today is going to be a glorious day, believe me. So, and speaking of glorious, I thought I would kind of talk about the glorious ascent of wine in the United States. It's a fascinating story, I think, and it's been a roller coaster ride. You know, the Vikings, when they discovered North America, called it Vinland because there were vines everywhere, and indeed there were. However, they produced not a very good wine. The early colonists tried to make the wine from that, and they were little brown berries, kind of bitter, that grew on the grapes, etc., and not suitable for producing wine. So it wasn't like the wine from home at all that grew on the grapes, etc., and not suitable for producing wine. So it wasn't like the wine from home at all. And the, the winemaking attempts were unsuccessful in this country. You know, no, none other than uh, Thomas Jefferson, one of our founding fathers, uh, tried to grow vineyards and make wine at his beloved uh, plantation, and it was totally unsuccessful. Even though he sent cuttings from when he was ambassador to France, he sent thousands of cuttings back to Virginia to see if they couldn't plant something there. And they, well, they didn't understand. Their, the ground here has aphids or phylloxa, which is in the aphid family, and it kills the grapes. In fact, we nearly destroyed uh, the entire uh, grape crops of Europe uh, back in the 1800s when we were shipping. There was a lot of experimentation on shipping plants to and from different countries. And we were shipping grapevines there, and they, the phylloxa invaded all the vineyards of Italy and decimated them. Well, we sent them that evil curse. We also sent them the cure, because uh, most grapevines throughout the world, there are very few places. Uh, South America, there's a few, and even in our own country up in Oregon, there's a few places that uh, the uh, Vitis vinifera, which is the real uh, winemaking grape variety, uh, is grafted on Native American rootstocks and therefore does just fine because the American rootstocks are immune to phylloxera. But that's uh, another story for another time. Uh, uh, Americans just had this unusual relationship with wine. And uh, it started out, you know, all the founding fathers drank a lot of wine, Madeira, and wine were very popular, and they imported them. And that was the way it really was in the United States. Uh, just the elite drank wine, and they drank wine that they imported only because there was no wine coming from this country that was really palatable or very good. Anyhow, time marches on, and the gold rush hits California. Well, that sends thousands of people out in the 1840s, right prior to the Civil War, uh, to live in California and mine gold. Well, they found another gold out there. They found that the uh, North California climate was a great deal like the Mediterranean, and we were beginning to get massive influx of uh, Southern Europeans who were used to wine as an everyday beverage. 
and they just couldn't get it because it was not the imported wines were all pretty expensive. It was hard to import really inexpensive everyday table wine that the working class could drink. So then when they discovered that this did well in California, they started to bring over European cuttings, planting them, and we were off to the races with making wine in this country. But it still was only two people drinking wine, the upper class or effete snobs and the poor Mediterranean lower class who were used to drinking it every day as an everyday beverage. Well, at any rate, so that was the way it was through the Civil War. And after the Civil War, uh, they began to bring wine from all over uh, the country uh, and grow it around Cleveland and around places in Ohio and Michigan, etc. And while the wine was never really very good, it was wine and we were off to the races. Well, this budding industry was nipped in the bud by something that come along called Prohibition. Excuse me, Prohibition, you know, didn't come about just overnight. Prohibition took a long time to evolve. And it, when it was enacted, it was 1919, and it was the law of the land till 1934. So it was 15 years uh, that you couldn't have any liquor uh, in the United States at all or beer. However, you were entitled by the amendment to grow or to produce 350 gallons of wine in your home. Well, this created another new industry in California. They were shipping grapes back east where people would buy the grapes and be able to make wine. And uh, they wanted wine that was uh, where the grapes were durable. In other words, they had to be thick-skinned because they had to make that five-day train trip from California to the East Coast, and the grapes had to withstand that, so they sought out an awful lot of thick-skinned table grapes, and as a matter of fact, we have an interesting story in Minnesota, Uh, the folks up in the Iron Range, there were a lot of Italian miners up there, sent a fellow by the name of Mondavi out to California to buy some grapes for them, and Mondavi was a pretty smart guy. Loved the weather there as opposed to Virginia, Minnesota. Uh, and he stayed there and he sent for his wife and children. One of the children was Robert Mondavi, who a lot of people credit being the father of really fine wine coming out of California. Uh, and I wouldn't deny him that honor. Uh, Bob Mondavi is a great guy and he did a tremendous amount for the wine business in the United States. Uh, but his father was sending these grapes back and eventually bought some vineyard land and grew his own grapes. And at that time, they also had these things where they called grape bricks, where they would take and crush grapes and make a hard brick out of them, just like they would tea leaves, this big brick, send it out, you'd throw it in a big vat of water, add sugar, and yet instant let it ferment, and you had sort of instant wine. And those were very popular. So... Uh, Prohibition did a lot of damage. The budding vineyards that we had around the country uh, lie fallow for those that 15 years. It was a long period of time. In California, a lot of the vineyard lands went to growing prune or uh, plums and uh, fruit trees, etc. And wine was sort of forgotten. Some people made it themselves at home, but there 
was none really available commercially, and the commercial quality wine was much, much better than uh, the kind you made at home. In fact, you wonder if you didn't get tired of that, you make a couple barrels of the same wine, and you have that same wine all the time. Well, anyhow, uh, fast forward, the end of Prohibition, and then there were people like Fritzy Haskell, who had them drinking wine here in Minnesota, when the rest of the country was drinking gin fizzes. And why wouldn't you drink gin fizz? You know, the idea was there, uh, finally you could get alcohol where you were running the chance of going blind or getting alcohol poisoning, etc. was legitimate good stuff, and wine was sort of neglected. Well, time marches on, and along comes World War II, and an awful lot of American, millions of American servicemen were sent to Europe and got the idea of dr- drinking wine on a daily basis, much like they did in Europe. Uh, and But then the real motivational thing came in the 60s when inexpensive travel to Europe enabled everybody to go to Europe and afford it instead of a grand tour <laughs> that only the top elite and the wealthiest people could afford. Anybody could afford a trip, and it became very popular. Plus, one of the other things that was happening is you had these flower children in the early 60s, and wine just went better with marijuana than hard liquor did. And so a lot of sweet wines were very popular, and wine became much more popular. And then in 1976, we had the great Paris taste where American wines beat their French counterparts, and beat them handily with a French panel with the judges. And it just shocked the entire wine world that California wines uh, could rival the ones in Europe. Well, again, time marches on, and Morley Safer on 60 Minutes in 1991 did a show on the French, called The French Paradox. And what that was simply was the French people eat all of this fat, foie gras, and Riet and everything else with all this fat in and yet have a very low incidence of heart uh, trouble. <clears throat> well, they figured it out, and their answer was they drink a lot of red wine. And boy, we were off to the races in the wine industry then. As a matter of fact, I don't know whether 60 Minutes is solely responsible for it, but in the 90s, consumption of wine in the United States doubled and almost tripled. And that was just unbelievable. Uh, Today, all 50 states have wineries in them, including Alaska and Hawaii. We are the number one consumer of wine in the world and the fourth largest producer of wine in the world. And the big three, of course, being France, Italy, and Spain, then along comes the United States. And people are accepting wine as an everyday table beverage. And it was a struggle, believe me. I was very close to uh, Frank Sunmacher and Alexis Lachine, uh, pioneers in the wine business, who helped them in California change the name. You used to get wine from California. It would be called Hock, called Chablis, Hardy, Burgundy, uh, all these names which today are illegal to use because uh, of the world treaty thing in the 80s. But at any rate, uh, they convinced them to use the varietal name Chardonnay, Cabernet, Zinfandel. And then we had the explosion of white Zinfandel, 
Well, it was just remarkable the turnaround uh, in this country on wine. You know, today we are probably one of the greatest wine-producing countries in the world. Our U of Davis, uh, the California University of Davis Wine School, everybody in the world wants to send their children there. It's just remarkable. And uh, this has been a total evolution in uh, California style and wines. But then it wasn't just California, as I said a moment ago. All 50 states are producing wine, and some of it is quite good. When we get into Washington State and Oregon particularly, those Oregon Pinot Noirs rival the Pinot Noirs of Burgundy. It's just absolutely remarkable what has happened in the wine business in the United States. And as I said earlier, don't forget we're a very young business, even in up to the 60s. Most of the wine produced in the world, other than the, the big three countries I mentioned where they drink wine every day, were fortified wines. New Zealand, the United States. In the United States, to 1960, 60% of the wine produced in the United States was fortified wine. That sherry, port, uh, Madeira, those kind of wines, uh, which were very hard for the homemade winemaker to make. He could make the table wine, but he couldn't make those fortified wines. So it's been a complete evolution, and in a very short time, when we stop and think about it, uh, it isn't even a hundred years. But at any rate, that's the history of the uh, wine in the United States, and I thought you'd all enjoy just taking a walk on this beautiful Saturday morning down memory lane and see how the wine business has changed in the United States. Always interesting, Jack. Great stuff. Well, I'll tell you what, also fun, and it's a great weekend to do some shopping at any one of the Haskell's locations. The folks at Haskell's love to talk about wine, and by the by, we have a wonderful bouquet of roses, a new one this year. Last year's was so popular. We're at six bottles of rosé wines from around the world, and what a wonderful treat to have on your deck or patio, a glass of rosé wine, and have a different one every night. You can do that with this bouquet rose. It's only $75, and you get six bottles of rosé from around the world. You can get that at any of the Haskell stores. There's a Haskell's near you where you can save big dollars on wine. There's a Haskell's in Bloomington, Excelsior, down in Fairball, right off of 35. Our Maple Grove Supercellar is not to be missed. It's an enormous display of wines from around the world. In downtown Minneapolis, we have free parking on Saturday and Sunday. Uh, There's a Haskell's in Plymouth, St. Paul, Stillwater, White Bear Lake, and Woodbury, too. And if you can't come into Haskell's, go to Haskell's.com. And don't forget, we do deliver at Haskell's, and we're delighted to introduce you to some of these wonderful wines and the wine evolution that has taken place in our lifetime has been remarkable. Fantastic. Yes, absolutely. Jack, let's uh, let's do this again next week. You know, Denny, I'm going to look forward to that. That's Jack Farrell from Haskell.